0: Yeah, on. Two
1: twins, and that's that's
0: Lewis on the news okay their early work was a little too new wave for my taste but when sports came out in 83 i think they really came into their own commercially and artistically
1: the whole album has a clear crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost <laughs> yeah what a great way to kick off Uh, episode 20, what do we got T 28, 29 episodes over. You just got the, you heard everything you need to know about this record. I mean, there you go. That's that's the only review that matters. Patrick Bateman checking in guest appearance here on episode 29. Here are two twins and an album T that also included just so we're, we're sourcing properly. That was Patrick Bateman with a little bit of Paul Allen. Uh, Yes. Yes. Paul Allen. (laughs) new card (laughs) it's called bone and the lettering is something called sicilian rail (laughs) i (laughs) love that part
0: what a what a fabulous and i actually in due time and on this episode uh i'm gonna share one of my other favorite um 80s satire films that actually happened more closer to the time period um but uh, yeah, American Psycho is one of the best, I think, uh, satires of the 80s time period that that you could ever get. It's uh, hilarious and wrong and just fantastic. It's great.
1: Kind of an 80s theme to uh, today's show. We're going to be looking at Huey, uh, Huey. And the album Sports.
0: Yeah, this is this is a great pick. I'm I'm excited to talk talk a little Huey. I, I, well, well, I don't know if the episode's gonna be good or not because you
1: know we're uh, two minutes in, but uh, great pick nonetheless. Look, nobody should be too cool to dig uh, a little Huey Lewis in the news, right? I mean, if you th- if you're too cool for that, don't even bring your stuff in here. You know, yeah,
0: that's a problem. If so, yeah.
1: Well, we're going to get into sports, but you know, the, the first sport that we always need to dabble in here in Two Twins in an Album is the sport that is called round and round. Well, think of everything in sports terms tonight. So T like a bowling ball, what's going round and round for you? Well, usually into the gutter if
0: it's, uh, <laughs> yeah either my bowling game or my mind, I guess we could say, um, listen, I'm kicking off round and round with actually a song that we're not going to discuss tonight, but it's Jacob's ladder, uh, by Huey Lewis in the news. And, uh, I didn't know that Bruce Hornsby wrote that song for him. And while I was doing some, uh, you know, a little bit of research on sports. Well, I, wait a minute.
1: You're, you're already breaking the rules of, of round and round. You you can't choose a song. Well, I figured, well, it's not on the record. So I figured, um, you know, it's, well, wait, okay. But do you, should you choose the album four as opposed to the song, Jacob Ladder? I don't know. I okay, then I'll just say the whole album four. You know, okay, there, I, you go, there you uh, go. Uh which also has uh what's the what's the other
0: now? I gotta now I gotta think of another song so I can actually make oh, it. Oh it's seven. got
1: it's got an uh, gigantic hit.
0: Yeah, um the uh uh it's 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 a great song. It's a hip to be square. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, which is another great one from American Psycho. So hey, um <laughs> let's go with Huey Lewis in the news four, I guess. Uh in a two twins in an album first. We'll go ahead and pick the same band because uh um, why not, I guess. Uh the second one for me is uh it's you know, it's it's kind of a um it's a little, I suppose, cliche-ish, but I've just been listening to the uh uh debut from Boston, you know, and sometimes you go too long without it and you revisit it and you just realize how just phenomenal, you know, those songs really are. And for a debut. Um, you know what an outstanding band and there's also a a clip on youtube that's great it's a full concert of them playing at a giant stadium and they just they sound good and they're in their they're in their form they're in their prime you know you got sib back there on the drums with that giant afro just killing it you know i mean it's uh sib hashian yeah it's (laughs) it's 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 a really good watch uh if you're looking for kind of an original boss and i actually think that was on the don't look back tour which because you know back then i mean don't look back came out like what six months after the uh you know debut um but yeah it's uh it's definitely worth the watch so uh really just the uh debut self-titled from boston and then i guess i'll stick with the uh american psycho theme a little bit here because been getting into some kind of late 70s early 80s genesis so we'll go with
1: duke uh, the 1980 album duke
0: that's what's round and round for me new blaze what is round and round for you buddy
1: well there is a recent reissue that's rather expensive but i get why and it is the uh re-release of the 1994 album wildflowers by tom petty Hmm. not with the heartbreakers which is probably why i like the album it's my favorite petty album i think it's just fantastic what's wrong with the heartbreakers the heartbreakers are terrible it's like the worst backing band ever how are they terrible Oh, they're so boring. What are they? Well, yeah, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't make them terrible. We did Wildflowers. Was cool. He worked with Rick Rubin and all these new musicians and actually had a drummer who like played, you know, it was, it was, I, I really, I do you like Wildflowers. Remember we, we saw him on that tour. That was the first Yeah, one. Wildflowers yeah. is great, but I
0: don't, I mean, you know, God, the poor heartbreakers.
1: Yeah. Like, I don't dig the heartbreakers. You're, you're really breaking that their hearts. Those guys. I like, yeah. <laughs> I like the news a lot more than I like the heartbreakers. Let's put it that way. The news were just slightly more important to their band, I suppose, than the
0: heartbreakers. Were right.
1: There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, next up, amazingly enough, I don't think, I don't think this is the first time this has happened, but uh, it's, you know, the most recent nonetheless, Boston's Don't Look Back. Oh, were you really?
0: Really? We yeah. both went with Boston. So which album do you like better, the debut or Don't Look Back, if you had to pick top to bottom?
1: The debut is a better album. Yeah. Yeah, I like listening to don't look back because it's a little fresher because I listened to the debut album so much growing up. However, the song don't look back is better than anything on any Boston album. Completely agree. I mean, that song is just that, that song is magnificent. It's right un- top to It's bottom. unbelievable. It was, it was so brilliant for sure. And then lastly on the list would be, uh, again, I, you know, going with quite a bit of eighties stuff tonight, but, uh, knee deep in the hoopla, the album from starship. <laughs> sure. Why not? And, uh, really strong album. I know that there's a lot of, you know, Jefferson airplane and Jefferson starship. People tend to discount th- that era of starship, even though it's far and away the most popular era, but you know, I, I really like we built this city and I love Sarah. I think that's, I mean, that's an excellent single. So, you know, I, good record. A lot of, lot of cool stuff in there. Uh, Fun to hear Grace Slick sing in such a commercial way. So I, I dig knee deep in the hoopla, man. Dan be the Haters. They actually had a
0: couple of great songs too after It's Not Enough it is a great Starship song and It's Not Over Till It's Over. The really good Starship song. These were
1: kind of minor hits. Well, how about uh, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us oh, Now? Yeah, I mean- of course. Yeah. So, yeah, man. Well, there it's you go. Funny to, it was funny to hear you. You know, we can see
0: each other. Obviously, our listeners can't see us, but it was kind of funny just now uh, to, to not only hear, but to see nubs say, well, what about nothing's going to stop us now? I mean, that's great. And he's wearing a Mastodon shirt while he's, <laughs> while he's saying that. <laughs> I got to say that nothing sums up two twins in an album better than that right
1: there. But but beautiful, wonderful duality of taste right there. I must say, Nub. Love that great observation and, and, and nothing sums up two twins in an album quite like a full examination of the third album from Huey Lewis and the news, which is where we will take things right now as we dive into sports right off the bat. I just love the title of the album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's good. Yeah. You no, know, It's just Thanks. so Huey Lewis. I don't know if you've ever watched interviews with him. He is just the coolest, oh yeah, like most down to earth, yeah guy. He's got like a great like nodding smile sort of yeah. thing going. i mean he's he's very good, he's amazing, I mean smart and clever, kept his head throughout all
0: I mean, he's a giant, giant star i mean during this time, and always kept his humility, kept his head, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but the way this band cut its teeth and just worked so damn hard to get to where where they got to. That really shows, I think, in in certainly the the personality of their front man. I got to say, when you said sports, one of the best signs I've ever seen, like when people hold up signs at a sporting event or something, you know, people hold up like, you know, like John 316 or or something making fun of a player or, you know, one of the best signs I've ever seen a fan hold up at, um, I don't even remember what game it was. I think it was a football game. They just had a sign held up that just said sports exclamation point. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's great i was like that is a good sign right there that's that's worth that's worth the while worth the time <laughs> that's like you know to me still the one of the greatest things in film is in animal house when john Belushi's just wearing the sweatshirt that just says college college yeah <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. sports you know college right, right right i love the understated humor it's so good but um <laughs> You know, I, I don't know, you know, you and I are always exchanging content and links and Hey, check this out and listen to this and listen to that. I sent you a link a couple weeks back. I think when we first kind of determined that we were going to do this album yeah, of uh, Huey Lewis and the news live show on the sports tour in Japan. Did you watch it? I did. Yeah. Isn't it extraordinary? Like, it's amazing. I mean, they were so hot.
0: They were you know, I mean, time. it's it, It's amazing that the confidence of the band and I mean this is a band that just clicked on and we've talked about Zeitgeist, right? We talked about it with Limp Biscuit. We talked about it with a few other bands that just captured the moment perfectly. These guys were right there. I mean early mid 80s just capturing the the vibe, um, the style, the feel good, you know, kind of thing. I mean, they they just had it all covered. I love my favorite part of that that uh, that clip is before the show. When they're, I think they're doing a warm-up, but they're just doing this like jam, like this blues jam, like the guys are playing their horns and they're playing something. It's not like a song, but it's just sort of a a jam to get everybody like grooving and into it. And they're showing that at the same time, they're kind of splicing that with the crowd, which is obviously all hyped up for them to come out and they make a great entrance.
1: I mean, it's a yeah, it was. I was glad you sent that over. That was uh that was a great clip. It's a band that's really easy to root for, because you always get the vibe that they appreciated everything that they got, yeah, and you know, there's a there's just kind of a pureness to what they did. And we'll talk. I mean, the the album is overtly commercial and achieved incredible status as the band would go on to do, but they also went on to really leave that commercialism and go into a place that was very non-commercial. You know, they did like a an old covers album and they went into a lot of blues stuff and they even did dabbled in some jazz and I mean Hugh Listen to the news achieved like rock star status and then almost immediately rejected it and that gave them some longevity. They're still a, a very vibrant touring act. I went and saw them, you know, a few years back uh at the you know Pine Knob Music Theater, which is like our large outdoor amphitheater here in, in Southeast Michigan. And The place was packed, and yeah, you know, people loved that they could recognize and sing and dance to every song. And I mean, and the band still totally rocked it. I know Huey Lewis now is having some hearing difficulties, and I mean, he's been on tour forever, but you know, still a band that connects with an audience for sure. And I think they're just there's a workmanlike aspect to this group, you know, and just something that you can really root for. You would think this band's from the Midwest, and they're very much not from the Midwest, but you would (laughs) think they are. You know, they just they kind of have that. That vibe to them, so they do. I mean, in, in in terms of how to make it
0: big, these guys cut their teeth about as hard as anybody. I mean, playing clubs and playing, you know, blues and I mean covers and I mean they they're this was not a um, glamorous, you know, kind of progression to the top. And it almost seems like collectively, and you know, they're led by Huey, but the guys in the band are tremendously important songwriters and contributors and all that. And um, it's almost like they kind of said, all right, like we want to sell a ton of records and be huge. So let's just, let's just make pop songs. We'll just do it. We, we know how to do it. Let's do it. And they wrote this album, which is, I mean, I couldn't believe how many of the songs, because I hadn't listened to this album in years and I couldn't believe how many of the songs I knew. I mean, I knew I was going to know a bunch, but I didn't know I was going to know like basically all of them. And it's almost like they did that on this. They did that on four, and uh, to your point, they just kind of said, "All right, now it's time to do something else." Right. So I think they're just skilled enough, and they cut their teeth hard enough, and they, they and they know what they're doing enough to kind of be able to say, "I'm sure tomorrow, if they all of a sudden decided they wanted to put something out that was commercial, they could do it." You know. But they're probably kind of been there, done that, and I think they're enjoying, you know, like you said, kind of revisiting their roots a little bit more and. Obviously, they're in a position to be able to do so. But yeah, for a period of time, there were few bands, you know, bigger than these guys and they just hit the mark perfectly during the feel good, indulgent eighties, which, which is, which is parodied very nicely in American Psycho. But there is a movie before we, you know, kind of get to the, you know, the nerdy deeds and, and the rest of it. I, I've always felt this movie is the ultimate satire and metaphor for the eighties. Now it was made a few years later, any clue to uh, what movie I'm referring to now.
1: It was made a few years after the eighties or it was made a few years after American psycho late eighties was made in 1989. This movie. Okay. Not a lot of people realize the
0: satire because it's such a kind of screwball comedy film.
1: But if you look deep, there's tremendous you know symbolism of the time period. Okay, yeah. So uh, before hearing that, my first instinct guess was Back to the Future. Okay, but the Back to the Future was not made in 1989, nor is it a screwball comedy. But right. what's interesting is Back to the Future plays a key role in the career of Huey Lewis, as we well know. Absolutely. And so uh, let's see, 1989 screwball comedy. It'd be pretty good if you got this. Saturday I didn't. Saturday. I didn't give you a ton of information.
0: Yeah. So I'll give you a nice hint. I feel like. Terry Kaiser should have been given an Academy Award for this performance. Academy Award. Not even have any other nominees. Just an Academy Award. Just hand it to him. Terry, Terry Kaiser.
1: Terry, see, I don't know who Terry Kaiser is. Well, Terry Kaiser played Bernie Lomax in the film <laughs> oh, Weekend at Bernie's. And, I, you know, I,
0: <laughs> I was thinking about this. I was like, I wonder if sports came out kind of around the same time. Now it didn't sports was in 83 and this was in 89, but I always, you know, when we did the American psycho thing, I was kind of thinking, you know, I mentioned weekend at birdies because I've always felt, you know, people think that that's just a goofy screwball physical comedy about, you know, dragging a dead guy around. But, you know, if you really look closely that, that, that movie is all about the indulgence, you know, the, the superficialness and the sort of materialism of the time period. It was almost like they got to the end of the decade and figured this will be really funny, but also it's going to tell the the full story of what we've been experiencing for the last nine years. And for those, I mean, many, most of you probably know, but the whole plot of the movie is that, you know, these two guys uh, go over to house sit at this guy's beach house, who's their boss. And he's, they show up and he's dead. And so, um, but they need to pretend that he's alive. So they basically like treat him like a puppet. And so they're like dragging this dead guy around and they find ways to make him wave to people. And, and the, the best part of the whole movie is that nobody notices everyone's using him. He's, he's the rich guy. He's got the beach house. So there's like 80 people over at the beach house and nobody notices the guy's freaking dead, you know? So it's like this, it's this real, uh you know, symbolic thing about how, People around this time were just so into feeling good and so into materialism and, and sort of using others. It, it's, it, I, I always like when I watch it. It's so funny and and the, the the performance by the guy who plays Bernie, the dead guy, from a physical comedy standpoint, unmatched. I mean, just you know, just unbelievable. But um, that always reminds me of a little bit of the context, much like an American Psycho, which came much later, around what this time period was like. And Huey Lewis captured it. You know, these are feel good songs. These are upbeat. These are toe tappers. The and, and you can just really take yourself back a little bit and realize that they were just really capturing that moment that I think if you really want to get the best flavor for, uh, just watch Weekend at Bernie's, in in my humble opinion.
1: Let's just dedicate the rest of the show to to the memory of Bernie Lomax. That's right. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's run the playbook a little bit here and get into uh, some of them nerdy deets, dunder cheap about sports. You want some nerdy deets? Yeah! You want some nerdy deets? All right, so Sports was released on September 15th, 1983, as you mentioned. See, it was recorded in various spots in Northern California, studios in Berkeley, Sausalito, and where the band hails from, which is not the Midwest, as we mentioned, but. San Francisco, California. We, we talked about the name, just kind of the simplicity of it. And uh, when Huey was asked about it, he basically just said, yeah, we're guys that are into sports. You know, they're, And as you learn, they're huge San Francisco 49ers and um, San Francisco Giants fans. And when you look at the cover, which I love, I love the, the cover art for this album on the TV. I don't know if you can notice, but in the top left corner of the bar scene, it's Dwight Clark from the San Francisco 49ers catching a pass. It's a little tribute to their beloved 49ers here for the guys in Huey Lewis and the news. He only
0: caught one pass his whole career, didn't he?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: They certainly only only show one. of. Yeah. I swear he only caught one ball. It was the, you know, in the back of the end zone, but yeah.
1: Yeah. He actually, he actually had other catches, did he? (laughs) Apparently so. Apparently a couple. Yeah. (laughs) A little thing about the cover art that's, that's kind of interesting too, is they took the picture of it at a place called the 2am club, which is a bar that was located in uh, Mill Valley, California. It looks like it's a painting or that it's superimposed and it's treated, but it's an actual photograph. And the band had performed there a lot, uh, during kind of the early days of, of Huey Lewis and the news. And Huey has revealed since, and I think this is hilarious. He was like deathly hungover during the photo shoot for this (laughs) cover art. And he he thinks about that every time he sees it. He's like, "Oh, God, I was so hungover from the night before." But they they just kind of captured the guys all kind of sitting around and being dudes, you know, which is a very good image for the news. But I love the bass player, the guy who I said the cigarette in his mouth, who I always called the bass player, but really his name actually is Mario Cipollina. and he's the bartender with the tuxedo on, and he's still got the cigarette hanging out of his mouth and you know, the, the, the news, while very few could name them, I mean, you could offer most of the world a million dollars just to name one guy in the news's first and last name. And I guarantee you, you would keep the million dollars for a very, very, very long time, but they're kind of identifiable just because they were so famous, you know, and they were such an MTV band that yeah, they all appeared in the videos and, um, uh, While the name was Huey Lewis in the news, the news themselves are are really, you know, significant, not just obviously musically and and as part of the band, but um, just in the the image of them. I mean, you kind of recognize the guys like, oh, I knew what the guitarist looked like and I knew what the bass player looked like and the drummer and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't know their names. So let's just look at those right now. So we mentioned uh, the bass player on guitar, saxophone and backing vocals was Johnny Cola. Uh, the drummer, who I actually would have known this guy's name, Bill Gibson, because I kind of became interested in him because he's actually really strong drummer. And uh, when I saw him live, I was really impressed with him. And, you know, he's been playing with Huey forever. Chris Hayes on lead guitar and backing vocals. That guy can really shred, by the way. And Sean Hopper is the keyboardist. And and again, like all the news except for Mario Cipollina, he also sang background vocals. So, you know, let's give the news a little shout out here. You know, let's name them and give them some
0: credit, right? Well, they deserve it. I mean, if you, you know, look at their songwriting contributions on this record and, you know, even on the four record, I mean, you know, th- these were not a bunch of like, I mean, my, my first kind of thought before finding out more here on the news was that they were kind of the, the 12 bar blues types in the backing band. And, you know, Huey'd play the harmonica and they'd sort of back him up and all that stuff. Um, which I'm sure there were still some of that, but, no, these guys wrote, I mean, these are pop songs and they wrote most of them. I mean, there are a couple that had songwriters, one of them on this record, um, and a couple on four, but you know, the rest of them, I mean, big, huge hits written by these guys in the band. So they had chops to not only, you know, kind of come up with what was mostly blues stuff and then some new wave stuff, as is noted by our friend, uh, Patrick Bateman there during the intro. Um, but obviously these guys knew how to write hooks and pop melodies and boy, they sure as hell executed on that here.
1: So the album was, it can only be described as wildly successful. Uh, it was seven yeah. times platinum. It ended the year ranked number two on the uh, billboard year end chart. Now, I don't know for a fact what number one was. I, I would guess it was a little album called born in the USA, but I don't know for sure. It, it could have didn't. been an album called Thriller, too, right? No, Thriller wasn't uh, 1984. Oh, oh, Born in the USA came out in 83? It, Born in the USA came out. Well, Born in the USA came out in 84. So, well, I guess on year-end, that you year might be right, on year-end album charts. So maybe it wasn't. What year did Thriller come out, to? You? So quick research here, sure. uh, from the, from
0: our research department, yeah. uh, thriller was actually, it was the top selling album of 1982 in, in its first two months. And it was also the top selling album in
1: 1983. Oh, wow. Okay. So there you go. So yeah, Michael Jackson's thriller. So when you're in that ballpark, you're doing quite well oh, yeah. uh, from a commercial standpoint with, which sports certainly did. Uh, so there was I'm a little
0: surprised by this. Our research department continues to, to be crack over here. They're just an amazing crack team here. There was another album made in 83 that competed with sports and with um, thriller uh, sold 8 million copies. Care to guess 1983 you
1: know, 83 was so the year of singles. I mean, it was when you think about it, it makes sense. And it was led by
0: a gigantic single.
1: 1983 had so many hit singles. I don't know. Is there any sort of hint you can give me without giving it away? Let's see. Well,
0: because of where the band comes from, uh, this one had a slightly better opportunity to be a worldwide hit because uh, this trio came out of the UK.
1: Trio? 1983? I don't know, too.
0: Trio from 1983. Synchronicity. uh, 8 million copies and actually flirted with number one for a bit um in a year where clearly there were some powerhouses but yeah i was surprised to see i mean it's a great record obviously
1: but yeah that one sold i love synchronicity i do so uh so that wraps up the the nerdy deets for sports t so i, I want to hear your huey lewis in the news story because this album actually holds a really significant place in in my uh collecting and musical history but I want to hear your story. So, why don't we do that? And when we get into the uh, wondrous stories, here we go. All right, we looked at the playbook. Now let's look at the record book. T, what's your wonder story for sports? Well, a couple things that kind of come to mind. The first is um, when I really started.
0: I mean, I, I've written songs pretty much my whole life, but when I really kind of hunkered down and started writing and recording from a sort of DIY standpoint, and I think really kind of taking some of my ability to kind of record effectively to the next level was when I first got Logic, I think it was to the, the, the Apple program, I think it was called Logic Express at the time I was living in New York City. And I used to, I would set up in the corner of my little apartment. And, uh, and I, you know, I had a MIDI keyboard and a guitar that would actually plug directly into the computer, which is kind of weird. Um, didn't sound great, but it got the job done. You know, they had amp effects through logic and all that. And so I, um, the, the, the way I learned, cause I'm not really good at like reading instructions and that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's <laughs> not really, not really my bag, you know, to like, uh, actually like read up on things. So I just like kind of do them and that's how I learned usually why it takes me a long time to learn things. But, uh, I basically learned logic by recording two initial cover songs. Cause I figured I'll do a cover song that way. I don't need to worry about making it sound like particularly good or anything. And I did uh, a version of love is a battlefield by Pat Benatar. And then I did a version of heart and soul by Huey Lewis. And I remember sending it to you and kind of saying, Hey, I think I'm figuring out how to use this equipment. And here's this dumb version of, uh, heart and soul. And you were, you were actually like, that's pretty cool. And to this day, when we play Andrew's orange gigs, we, we play our kind of full band gigs. We actually have dusted off this version
1: of heart and soul and we play it and very well received. It's kind of a jammy sort of version of it. So, uh, it's sort of like a uh, Huey meets Slayer sort of version of heart and soul. You know, we really, we really get the metal out of that one. Yeah. I've got a cut of it here. I mean, I can. Uh, yeah, yeah, everybody's gonna hear this for sure.
0: Kind of cue it up. So this is uh I mean, this is a demo from uh, obviously we've you know fine-tuned things a little bit for the live show here, but this is a uh, demo from uh let's see, I would have recorded this in two thousand three. So seventeen years ago while I was learning logic logic express. But here you go.
1: Yeah, baby.
0: I mean, apparently I hadn't, I hadn't learned how to mix yet, but you know, you get. The idea.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so, um, so yeah, heart and soul always kind of, you know, I always think of that. And the other thing I always think of with Huey, you, you kind of, you know, you talked about the album cover, just Huey's kind of big face, you know, on the cover. And, and there are two things tied to that. The first is after sports, you know, one of the big hits, as we mentioned earlier on four was hip to be square and the hip to be square video i don't know i'm sure you could pull it up on youtube or whatever if any of you remember it you know but like most of the video is just huey's just giant face like right on the screen like taking up the whole screen and he's just like jamming his face like into the i mean it's it's so funny and it's like to the beat of hip to be square you know it's i think it's like a fisheye lens type thing um but it's so great it's just you know just huey just like it's like so much Huey, like you can't get, he's, he's like filling your entire screen and just jamming his face into it. It's so great. It's a great video, hip to be square. And I always was fascinated with uh, the, with Huey's uh, dimple chin. You know, I used to, when I was in school, you know, elementary school or whatever, I used to jam like a pencil into my chin for like 20 minutes. And then there'd be a dot there for like, you know, however long I could you know, 30 seconds. And I'd like tap the guy next to me and be like, look, Huey Lewis, look, Huey Lewis chin. And I
1: don't think anyone else (laughs) thought it was funny, but I thought it was funny. Um, But yeah, the dim, the dimple chin always kind of amazing. I mean, if you did like a list of the most famous, like butt chins, you know, he would be up there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So great harmonica player,
0: great songwriter, great musician, great guy. But I think the butt chin
1: is really what fascinates me the most. And uh, that's my wonder story. So, all right, here's a little Nub's history. So what is the first record album that I ever owned? On cassette or? I uh, know, uh, this would be on vinyl. Yeah. Oh, on vinyl? Yeah. What was my first record album on vinyl? Quiet Riot? That's right. Quiet Riot Metal Health. The third album I ever owned was actually on cassette and it was Genesis invisible touch. And we were right. taking a long plane ride to California and our mom let us pick out a cassette and that's what I chose and listened to it to death. And the rest is nerdy progressive history. The second album that I ever owned on vinyl was Huey Lewis and the new sports. And I had, I think I got it, you know, the following Christmas or sometime around then when I got the quiet riot album, so just owning this, holding it, is a good memory. You know, there were just so many hits that came from it that it was an album that was great to own. And again, MTV is part of this story. You know, MTV played a large role in in this band. And we've already mentioned like there's strong imagery with the band, but like they're not, you know, they're not mo- like supermodels or rock stars or anything like that. They're really just normal looking dudes. Um, but there was still something with them that. Connected and resonated, you know, and so just the memories of seeing them on MTV, and they had a hot time, you know. There, there were two or three years there where Huey Lewis and the News were about as big as anybody else, right? If you yeah. look at just pop rock, yeah. And and as we dive into the album, we'll learn that, but yeah, it's the second album that I ever owned. You can believe it.
0: You know? Well, and I do think the cover is super appropriate, and because they were a bar band, you know, they they, they these guys you know, they did not have the silver spoon of, of rock and roll. And to your point, they weren't, you know, glamorous dudes. They were just guys that could play and they played in the bars and played in the clubs and came up the hard way. Um, So yeah, it's kind of cool that they continually never let themselves either from an attitude perspective or from an image perspective, you know lose track of their roots and how they came up and you know all those things are important particularly through the 80s when you I mean goodness if you can imagine the indulgent opportunities these guys had as they were one of the biggest bands in the world but they always stayed true to themselves and I think that's you know part of why they they were beloved then and continually beloved now Very
1: very well said so T I think it's time you know you ready to play some sports I like sports. Sure. Let's go. (laughs) All right. Well, let's play sports and drop the needle. Let's go track by trap. Drop that needle. Let's do it. T, some songs are just born to be openers. And that's how you would describe the opening of sports with the heart of rock and roll. So, you know, it's the 80s, so everyone had to do some kind of backwards track as part of a song, right? I mean, it was like, uh, it's like part of the rule book of the eighties, but, you know, just kind of a thumper, you know, and a song that if this wasn't first on the album, there were like, you know, there were no other candidates to match the way that this kicked off the album. It's far from my favorite song on sports, but it's just such a, you know, perfect opener you know, and rhythmically it's got a lot of credibility and, you know, the riff is strong and Huey kind of sings a really catchy melody over the top. So kind of quintessential Huey Lewis in the news. When you say,
0: well, in the city shout outs, I mean, come on, you know, you get Cleveland in there, you get some Detroit, you know, this is, this is definitely an ode to, you know, blue collar rock and roll and, uh, Yeah, they capture that lyrically and they capture that musically here. Great, you know, great way to kick this one off. That's the tone for what you're about to dig into.
1: And just fun. You know, I mean, that's the cool part about Loose and the news is that, you know, it's just fun music. You know, like I said earlier, it's the type of stuff you can go, you know, on a weekend night at an outdoor concert venue as so long as we're not in a, you know, pandemic And just enjoy it, you know, And the heart of rock and roll is just a really easy song to like. It'd be a difficult song to like fall head over heels in love with. Right. Like, I don't think it's that type of jam, but it's certainly a jam nonetheless. And it sets up. We already heard this song once on this episode, (laughs) right? Uh, Yeah. Let's get into it. Heart (laughs) and soul. very well crafted song but let's just get one clear thing out of the way incredible use of the cowbell during the- oh <laughs> yeah
0: great cowbell um yeah so I, I think this is a rare instance on the album um of a song that they actually didn't compose and you know they would have this from time to time and there. obviously the last track is a cover song but um you know, every so often these guys, you know, and I think obviously with the point that they had gotten to here, you know, had some songwriting support that was external. And this happened a lot during this time period, obviously, you know, where there was something that was a surefire single and they knew that if it was performed and treated by these guys, you know, and heart and soul was no exception, you know, see who
1: wrote it, who wrote it? Did they bring in like, are there real famous songwriters who wrote it? Were they people that you've heard of? So this was written by
0: Mike Chapman and Nikki Chin. They wrote a bunch of songs for uh, Slade. Let's see. They wrote a song for Tina Turner. Better be good to me. Oh, they wrote Mickey by Tony Basil and they wrote exile kiss you all over. So these guys knew what they were doing and obviously supplied, you know, Huey Lewis in the news with a great hit.
1: I have to admit, I've done kiss you all over at karaoke a few times in my day. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty solid karaoke track, T. Well, unfortunately, you have, yes. (laughs) Just I want to kiss you all over. I mean, who writes that? You know, seriously. Well, Mike Chapman and Nicky Chin. Yeah, I guess so. Exactly. (laughs) But, and so not a huge surprise just because this, this song is just, you know, sculpted for pop radio in the early 1980s. Yeah. The chorus just rips. I mean, it really just comes along really well. Yeah. and then you, you capitalized on this in your version of it, but I think the outro where it gets a yeah. did de- 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 i mean that is yeah you know, just like perfect harmony and riff making right there you know yeah
0: i mean, th- these this you're right, this is a professional song, you know, and uh, the the synth layers and all those things just it's extremely polished, very well done great great performance by these guys and You know that chorus, yeah, it's a ripper, it's a jam. There's no question, and that was what you know. You know what I kind of heard, and and certainly the way we treat it when we cover it is that straight up, it's a A to a G, just fricking jam. You know, and and good for them for you know taking a a song that obviously was written to be a hit and making it happen.
1: Well, track three is not. I think all would agree it's not written to be a hit, though it did become kind of a notable song on sports, but. Really, you know, a lot of times with Huey, you're just looking at, you know, certain excuses just for him to start rocking out on his harmonica, you know, and, and track three is a good example of that and that is bad is bad. know it doesn't stand up with the other songs from any sort of hit or memorable potential but uh i don't know what do you think of bad is bad it's a well-known tune for sure i mean it's you know i mean
0: when it popped up as track three i was like which one's bad i didn't recognize it by title and yeah it's like oh yeah i know this one it's a good track three you know you're coming off two surefire hits and you got another one on the way (laughs) you know it's it's kind of a nice one to stick in there again. You know a, a band that that I think enjoyed certainly wasn't afraid but even enjoyed you know revisiting and reminding you of their roots, right blues band kind of a you know to your point the harmonica stuff they they had this ability to be a pop band on sports but also stay true to what they are. Bad is Bad is kind of the best example of that um but yeah, it's a song that a lot of a lot of fans of the band, a lot of fans of this album really love.
1: wouldn't guess this, but Huey Lewis actually wrote this when he was collaborating with Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy, which number one, very cool that that was at one point a, a songwriting combination. I don't know the details of it, if Huey at this time was just trying to make it as a songwriter or what the situation was, but the two were working together and this sort of came out of that. And you wouldn't think that, you know, It's I don't think Thin Lizzy when I hear this Song, but clearly there was some creativity going on there that led to, you know, just a different kind of rhythm and a different kind of melody, which Thin Lizzy's kind of famous for, you know.
0: Yeah, and I think that Phil used to do a version of this song that was more upbeat because he liked it so much, you know. So um, I'm sure they toured together or crossed paths at some point, but uh, yeah, pretty cool that this, you know, unlikely pairing of, you know, Phil from Thin Lizzy and Huey, you know, kind of came about and. I think it's kind of cool that he took a liking to this song in particular and even kind of came up with his own arrangement of it.
1: All right, track four, uh, which sparked a little controversy, even while being a massive hit. To me, that was one of the great intros. I just love just the first couple of notes. I don't know, Maestro, what you have queued up, but I love the way the song enters, and that is I want a new drug. The double guitar slide. It's just, I love it. I love it. All right, T, you want to hear about the controversy? Oh, yeah. Huey Um, drama? Yeah, let's go. Very controversial, but Huey actually made more money off the song than he probably intended to because, you know, 80s music was just full of ripoffs, you know, ripoff artists. And this song is the source of really one of the great ripoffs of all time. And luckily for Huey, he caught it and he took a little action on it. So why don't you spin for me real quick? Just go ahead and spin that, you know, the kind of the middle of that song or even right where you left off, but let's just hear a few more seconds of I want a new drug and just see if you can pay attention to the baseline. I want a new drug. All right. So, you know, you got a little right like you feeling that you feeling that riff T. what i want you to do now is spin what you got queued up over then let's just do a little comparison here let's just put our detective hat on here and see what we hear ah Eerily similar, isn't it? And not to mention, the two songs came out like in the same year, virtually. I mean, it was these were not that far apart from one another. So uh, Huey Lewis did what most kind of working musicians at the time would do, which is sue the living crap out of Ray Parker Jr. And the two were able to uh, create some sort of settlement where Huey was paid some chunk of change. Oh, so this case, it was proven that this uh, was written first
0: and Ray Parker. So who who got the songwriting credit on Ghostbusters? Is it Ray Parker?
1: Well, yes, it it was originally Ray Parker Jr. But, and I don't know, again, these things would all come down to the settlement. So in some ways, Ray Parker Jr. might have to acknowledge that he sampled or borrowed from Huey Lewis. So as part of the settlement you might have had you know Huey Lewis's name added to it but i i'm sure that's not what happened because there were financial oh. terms
0: yeah interesting interesting
1: so yeah so here all this time we're just listening to the song you know in our you know five year old or six year old or whatever at the time ears and not really thinking about just the incredible similarities between these two huge hits and ghostbusters was you know a giant hit as was i want a new drug so controversy aside and Stolen baselines aside, what what are your thoughts on "I Want a New Drug"? I, I think this was a song that was a little, for me, it was a little harder to absorb. This one as a as a kid listener, as a younger listener, but in time, I've I've certainly learned to appreciate it quite a bit more.
0: You know, I mean, do you think maybe they'd just say, ah, you know, we're all making obscene amounts of money off all these dumb songs anyway so you know maybe we should maybe we should just not make a big deal but hey oh well i guess huey saw the opportunity to get a few points for uh every time ghostbusters gets spun and hey you know why not i mean plagiarism is plagiarism obviously got proven that that was the case um yeah i think uh, i want a new drug is is pretty cool again it's kind of a rocker great horns and sax and all that stuff at the end, you know, that again, this is more, I think of, of Huey kind of, uh, at his
1: roots. It's a really tight composition. Rhythmically. It's got that kind of pound to it. Not too far from, you know, the opening track, but that just the musicality comes through. It's simple, but it's really musical. And I think that's what stands out about the whole album. I mean, it's, it's so pure in its simplicity. Super musical, though, too. You mentioned the horns. I mean, there's a lot going on in this song and and all with a very catchy driving beat. So good that Ray Parker Jr. decided to uh, commit highway robbery <laughs> and, and put on the Ghostbusters soundtrack. Yeah, he, he just borrowed just it. You just borrowed it. Just to borrow. Yeah. yeah. Just, just a loan. Loaner. It's fine. Exactly. So that ends side one. That's a, not a bad little side one when you think about it. So you flip that record over and side two opens with you know you mentioned earlier you there were some, some songs on the album that you didn't realize you knew as well as you did i'm the first one that came to my mind was probably this one i thought oh i bet you what stood out to him was was track 5 which is walking on a thin line So this is another one of those with outside writers, you know, the, the news did not write the song. You can tell it's, you know, kind of the hit making formula, but again, really well performed. Uh, this song sonically sounds really cohesive and Huey delivers a pretty kick-ass vocal on this one too. But I see this as kind of the hit, one of the hidden gems on the album. I mean, it was one of the singles, but it wasn't a, a huge hit out of all the singles released. This was easily the most obscure, but, uh, I don't know. What did you think when you kind of rediscovered walking on a thin line? Memorable. You know, it's one
0: of those, again, this album is loaded with songs that were, you know, decent hits. Uh, I mean, some of them were huge, but you know, this is an example of one that was a single and you might not remember it until you give the album a full re-listen, right? Cause it's, you know, it's right in the middle of it. One thing you got to
1: remember that's a bit surprising is the album actually is produced by Huey Lewis and the News. So even though they brought in some songwriting, you know, boost with with a couple of the singles, the band still produced it. I think that gives the album a ton of credibility. You know, cuz not only did they achieve a sound that I think they were going for, but they were kind of at the controls. And that's that's a good sign, you know, for the the musical credibility and the vision of the band and the cohesiveness, because you know it's a large band too. You got a lot of different personalities, a lot of different ideas.
0: It's a great point. I mean, you know, listen, th- there's nothing wrong with every so often getting some songwriting support. I mean, that's you know, the, obviously, you know, we talk a lot about uh, you know on the old podcast here. We mostly focus on albums where you know you've got bands that kind of write you know music and lyrics pretty much across the board, but. Listen, if you were a band like these guys, and every so often you had a great song that was brought to you, I mean, that's okay. You still got to perform it. You still got to pull it off. You still got to be the right voice and be the right kind of executors of it. So, uh, no shame at all uh, for I think it's two two songs and a cover here, and and other than that, you know, either Huey or members of the News, you know, directly wrote the music and lyrics. So, yeah, I think it's. Perfectly cool and perfectly fine that uh, you know, these guys, you know, throughout their career, particularly the the height of their commercial career, balanced certainly the unquestioned ability to execute from a composition standpoint and write hits, with maybe a couple here and there that were given to them and that they
1: executed very nicely. All right, we're sort of approaching that like seventh-inning stretch, you know, kind of like getting near near crunch time in this uh the game that we're doing here. And uh, what we've got next is Finally Found a Home. It's a jam.
0: oh yeah I mean it's 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 my favorite song on the record you know um and again this is one where you get to it and you're like yeah like I've heard this now I don't know how big of a hit it was it it certainly must have gotten some airplay but um it's my favorite song now there are a couple others I really really like including the song after this just that are kind of brilliant from a um pop standpoint um but uh finally find a home I think I mean I think You know, the second side on this, um, you know, the last song's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a cover tribute piece, but I think the second side of this record's really strong. Most people probably think of the front side because you've got these sort of iconic hits, but walking on a thin line into Finally Found a Home, they're, you know, they're jamming. I mean, they're really grooving, they're getting after it. This is up tempo stuff. And, you know, I'm I'm also uh, pretty fond of the song that comes after. But I I think that finally found home is kind of my uh, my favorite
1: if I had to pick one that's cool to hear, you know, both songs, you know, monster drums from Bob Gibson. And this is a guy that, that, like I said earlier, you know, played with Huey Lewis in the news, his whole career. He's the one with the glasses, you know, you recognize him on the album covers and things like that, but really good pocket drummer, strong, strong hands, good pocket drummer. And you hear that come through, uh, I think really, you know, shines on side two for sure. It's just a nice driving deal, right? I mean,
0: it's just a, You know, this is a roll the windows down and blast it and
1: cruise down the highway type of thing. Yeah, I like it. All right. Well, getting near the end of the album and, but hey, you know what? Let's just, let's just throw one of the biggest hits of the, of the decade, you know, near the end of side two of this classic album. And that is, if this is it. You know, it's it. You know, a song is in the lexicon when when you say the title, you want to say the melody. I mean, it took a lot of discipline for me to say if this is it, because really, yeah. what you what you want to say is if this is it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Totally. This this is a song that I was not crazy about when I was young. I found it a little annoying. Yeah. It wasn't really in my fabric. You know what I mean? I mean, even though I was into this album, I was still getting to that point where I was craving the eventual obsessions with Metallica and the the things that we would eventually go through in the late eighties and early nineties. So, and even through that era, I would have seen this song as a little more like, you know, adult contemporary kind of cheesy or whatever, you know, we or yeah. it's like, you know, like 100.3 WNIC. For yeah. Those of you who grew up in Michigan type of music. But, but, and I think a lot of people
0: also equate it with stuck with you stuck with you, which is, I think from the four record, which those are two of his, uh, I mean, they're not really ballads, but they're kind of his two sort of more like lovey dovey mid tempo type pieces and obviously both huge hits. So I think a lot of people, uh, you know, kind of equate the two within Huey's catalog. And I happen to
1: (laughs) thoroughly dislike stuck with you and thoroughly love this song. Well, yeah. So, and I, I think stuck with you is terrible too. But in the last couple of years, if this is, it has become like legit, like one of my favorite songs. I listen to this song all the time. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and when I listen to it too, I hear things in it that are really exceptional, you know, like the vocal production is just, it, it's so pleasing, you know, the way that all the voices blend. You did a great job on the clip as usual, Maestro, just playing like the way that, the voices all blend during those callbacks on the outro chorus. And it's just such a pleasing melody. And you got to give it up because this one's written by Huey Lewis and Johnny Cole, the, the guitarist and saxophone player. So it's kind of a perfect song, really. I
0: mean, if you think about it, the sections are all great. The recording, to your point in production, is just perfect. It's got dynamics. It's, it, it's kind of lovey-dovey without being overly sappy the the outro's great i mean it's a tell me one thing that that you'd change if you were at the mixing board and you could do whatever you wanted to make this song even just a tad better
1: i mean yeah. i think it's i think it's pretty much perfect great point i agree on the perfection and one of the elements of the perfection is the guitar solo it just has yeah a gorgeous little ditty guitar solo that's again painfully simple but just fits the song so incredibly well. hundred percent. I mean, there's not one thing I would change structurally. I I wouldn't mix it
0: differently. I wouldn't change any of the instrumentation. It's just extremely well done. I agree with you. This one, I, I, I wasn't like loving this song when I was, you know, a kid or around the time that, that this was a huge hit, but I would say, you know, kind of within even just like the last 10, 15 years, you know, you kind of listen to this when It's like, that is a damn good song, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm glad that that's the same for you. That's awesome.
1: It is very cool. And We, we talked about last uh, episode when we did the Verve Pipe Villains, we talked about kind of the challenge of having a waltz be a hit with Reverend Girl. But this song proves the opposite, that a shuffle can always be a hit. You know, and if a shuffle is done really well, it can really lead to pretty strong commercial potential, you know, because it just has that sway to it, you know, and you go to the show and, and, and everyone can have their own little reaction to if this is it, but everybody's kind of singing along with it. And it's just, it's just infectious and, and really, really good. So it's, it's good to hear we're on the same page. I, I was looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. I didn't know what you'd think of this song in retrospect. All right, well we're about to wrap up here cuz like you said earlier, the, you know the last song is sort of this cover thing. So you might consider this the last, you know, proper song on sports and that is You Crack Me Up. Nice use of the uh, synthesizer here. You know, it it definitely translates very well. The song is written by Huey Lewis and the before mentioned Mario Cipollina, the bass player with the cigarette in his mouth. And yeah, I'm guessing he probably wrote that melody on bass. And then Sean Hopper was probably like, hey, that sounds really good on my synthesizer here. (laughs) And they just turned it into more of a synth driven song. But it's it's a nice element to the album to hear something that's a little more Mm synthy.
0: Yeah, synthy and upbeat. And... You know, it's got a nice little hook in it. I mean, yeah, it's cool. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very appropriate, uh, you know, cool way. Uh, I mean, obviously there is this, uh, it's almost like more of an outro, you know, this, uh, cover almost tribute, I would say. But yeah, you crack me up's a a great way to, you know, kind of round it out at the end with something upbeat and snappy. And I think it's good. I do like that underlying synth. It's, uh, it's a cool way to, you know, kind of get close to wrapping this up here.
1: It's snappy for sure. I want something snappy. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been 6 songs and Huey's just like when do I get to play my harmonica again? So, you know, you got to get the harmonica thing going again. So, no better way to do that than to do a little Hank Williams cover here with the Honky Tonk Blues. not the greatest way to conclude the album just from a listener's standpoint, but like we've said many times, this band always stayed true to its roots and its musical interests. And I'm sure they hit a point where it was like, guys, we got enough hit singles on here. We could pretty much do whatever we want with track nine. And they certainly did whatever they want, but they, they were having fun. You got to give them credit for that. Agreed. It's a,
0: it's an ode to, I would assume one of their favorite, you know, country jammy kind of artists uh, gets the harmonic out to your point. You know, I kind of feel like you cracked me up as a little bit of a nod to their sort of previous era. That was a little bit more new wavy, you know, and, uh, and this is a nod to, you know, kind of them coming up playing the rock clubs and the blues clubs and the bars and all those things that these guys cut their teeth on. So cool way to close it up nine tracks to your point earlier, you said seventh inning stretch. It's kind of like nine innings. And, uh, this one's the closer and top to bottom fun. So closing it out with honky tonk blues makes sense.
1: Yeah. What did, uh, Patrick Bateman called it slick or what, what did he say during the clip? But it's uh, you know, a pretty fair assessment. I mean, you conclude this album and I think any focus group would have been very pleasing to a record executive at the time. I mean, you, you would listen to this no matter what kind of listener you were, whether you like top 40 stuff or rock and roll or whatever your fancy was, I'm sure people left the initial listenings to this album and said, yeah, that's going to be a huge hit. You know, this, this was sort of a commercial no brainer. And I'm sure that upon release Chrysalis records was like, yeah, we're going to make some money off this one for sure. And I, obviously they did. All right. see, Well, we don't make any money for our analysis, but you know, let's do it nonetheless. So, uh, a lot of albums in the 80s we've referenced some of those throughout the show here we've we've kind of made some references to different albums that came out around this time so it's a highly saturated era of music with tons of hits so with all that considered where does sports fit and does sports matter what do you think does this album matter
0: yeah you know i think it does from the standpoint of if you think about up until this point you know and i'm sure there were some that came close now, this isn't like late 80s or early 90s or whatever where record companies started to get really kind of savvy about how this is done. I bet there aren't a ton of records, rock, pop, disco, metal, whatever else was going on around that time that just were loaded with hits in this way, you know. And the the kind of saturation nature of a band that could put together something as efficient as a nine song album where seven of them can legitimately be radio hits legitimately had to be unique to the time now I know you know thriller you could argue the same although the ratio of hits to songs may be stronger on sports than it is on thriller if you really think about it if you put it all together or at least comparable right the fact that it was so competitive against a backdrop of the best selling album of all time. And, you know, obviously some strong ones that we mentioned. I mean, this was a competitive year for these guys to come out with something that was just so loaded and synchronicity is a great album sold 8 million copies, but I don't think it could be argued that every song on synchronicity is a you know, has the opportunity to be a commercial success. They, you know, they really set a tone here for others to kind of say, shoot, I mean, could we put out a nine song album and have it be this efficient and have it be this loaded with opportunities for singles? You know, it was pretty unique, pretty special of its time. So yeah, I think this one mattered quite a bit. Now, musically, some probably would say that it's outdated or some would say that it's of its time, and not necessarily of today, but I think it captures the time period really well. You know, I kind of mentioned you know weekend at Bernie's and that sort of thing and 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 it was an interesting time period, you know, this early to mid eighties of kind of where people were at and where society was at and where the economy was at and where politics were at. I mean everything was just so uh indulgent and exciting and on the rise and everyone just wanted more more more, you know, and sports kind of delivered that. It's kind of like, you want hits here, <laughs> here's some hits. And the band was talented enough to do that. They delivered it. And I do think that part of that really mattered. So how about you Nub? What do
1: you think? You know, I think what really matters is the year 1983 in music and, and the fact that sports has a place in that gives it that era credibility. So, um, I think the all matters just because that year is so incredible. It, it's probably the greatest year we had in music of just this, this melding of the commercial and the creative. And just think about, I mean, we think 1983 and again, this is sort of like the second full year of MTV or whatever. I mean, this was very early in that stage, but you mentioned the police synchronicity and thriller was a significant part of the year, even though it didn't come out, but. You know, Hall and Oates was, they were starting to dominate during this year. Culture Club had its huge album. Duran Duran released Rio. Uh, David Bowie was doing Let's Dance. Prince released 1999. And how about this one for hitting home for us to, you know, this was the year of Toto Four. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you've like 1983 was just an insane meshing. Yeah. Yeah, of the staunchly commercial with the incredibly creative and artistic sports to me has that pureness, like I said, within that year. Because a lot of the things I mentioned were taking advantage of technology and image, and this was just a true rock and roll band making rock and roll music with real instruments. And you can hear that throughout the album, so I like its place in the year. Just as much as I like, you know, the album and some sort of relevance historically. So, you know, I I think it's important that way. All right. Well, let's uh, kind of our final analysis with the final cut. So T, tell me about sports. Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the for sale bin? T, where's sports for you?
0: I don't think you can put this in the first sale bin by any means too many good songs, but it's collecting dust for me. And that is mostly just because it can feel a little outdated. You know, it's, it's very, it's wonderfully produced, but it's also very, very overly produced. And, um, and there are some songs that just sound amazing. You know, we talked about a couple of them that will, you know, for me live on and don't feel outdated, but a couple of them do. You know uh, there's a little bit of a in a good way, you feel like you're in 1983, and then in some cases in a bad way. Uh, I think you know, the closer could have been something cooler than uh, the blues cover, you know, even though, hey, it makes sense, and it's definitely rootsy, but you know, uh, I think uh, any album that's you know really worth uh, elevating is something that closes up in in strong fashion and i would say that it's cool what they did here but it's not a strong closer so it's a great record it's a memorable record and as i noted i think it's a it's a record that has some importance as far as putting it in and spinning it top to bottom i think i'll you know pick a few songs uh, several songs actually from this to listen to regularly but there are a few that probably wouldn't be as high on the radar so i'm going to go collecting dust on a uh on a classic a really, really good top-notch record from the early eighties, but at times maybe gets a little bit outdated and just purely of its time. So what do you got on your final cut there?
1: I like that take. I think those are all really, you know, thoughtful explanations. I've got it in the collection because I think it should be part of a collection. You know, I think if you're going to have some of the kind of trademark sounds of the eighties, I think Huey Lewis in the news is important. Because so many people just associate the 80s with, you know, synth pop and, uh, you know, a lot of the things that were going on image wise. But in the end, you just, it was just like any other decade. You had some extraordinary musicians honing their craft. And Huey Lewis and the news uh, represent that for me. But it wouldn't be on the turntable, probably for all the reasons you said. But the reason why I think as an album, it's in the collection is because. Of the top to bottom aspect, it's sequenced very, very well. Yeah, both sides bring you a lot of fun. I think you know the first side with heart and soul, the second side with if this is it, and they're all surrounded by, you know, songs that you want to hear. And and after all, that's what really it's all about. I love that it's nine songs, very tight. Yeah, very focused effort. You know, the last song does what it does, but aside from that, it, it's it's just a very, very well thought collection of songs that represent a band probably hitting its peak, you know, cause you could say between this and four, the band is really peaking. And so for all those reasons, you know, I think it's in the collection. I think people should want to own this album. I think this is, you know, you could achieve a lot of these songs on a compilation or in a playlist, but to me, the album is a strong enough period piece for a very special year in music 1983 that you should pick it up and listen to it. It'll make a smile. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. All right, T, well, let's wind sports to a close. It's a little post-game interview here, a little post-game with our traditional. Dolores Reardon probably probably was a big fan of Huey Lewis in the news. Oh, you? yeah, no question. Big, big fan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, T, well, what is in your head?
0: Uh, well, the first song is Jacob's Ladder by Huey Lewis in the news so uh off the album <laughs> yeah. off the album four so, yeah 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 uh, we'll just give that give that another go um let's go with the the beatles and uh, i've been kind of listening to the white album a little bit but man no matter how many times uh it's a fascinating record i continue to just think that dear prudence is the best song on the record but uh obviously there's some other good competition there. But Dear Prudence by the Beatles, and also a great version of Dear Prudence by the Jerry Garcia band, which goes on for about twenty-eight minutes. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's a great version there, uh, nonetheless.
1: Pretty good version by Susie and the Banshees too. I really like I really like her version of that. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. A little a little gothy kind of take on it, absolutely. And uh, for the third song, let's go with a little boogie in your butt. By Eddie Murphy off his debut <laughs> self-titled record, Eddie Murphy. So that's
1: what's in my head. Nub, what do you got? All right. Well, I've got uh, little King's X ringing in my head with a more obscure song, though, Marshmallow Field, which is off the uh, Please Come Home, Mr. Bulbous album. We actually saw them on that tour in Columbus, Ohio, if you remember, and Marshmallow Field, they played at the show, and it's a real jam. It's, you know, big tie Tabor riff and love that album. Love that song. We're going to have to talk about King's X at some point. Don't you think? Cause I think
0: so. Yeah. An
1: overlooked band. I think so. Uh, I alone by live off throwing copper, a song that you and I play regularly at our acoustic shows and always a fun one to play. And uh, we we haven't got to play it for a while. Right. So, because you know, whatever
0: soon, baby soon, Soon, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm feeling good.
0: I think that the prospectus on us getting back out there,
1: playing some music, Here in the next couple months. I'm feeling good about it, man. Let's hope. All right, love it. Keep up the good feelings because we got to get out there again soon. And then, lastly, uh, one of my favorite metal bands from the last decade or so would be Avenged Sevenfold and the song uh, Creating God, which is off their album, The Stage. So uh, that's what's in my head, T. So, I'll tell you what's going to be in your head for a while is some of the songs off sports here. If this is it, Please <laughs> do-op. I, do-op. I can assure you that's the only song in the history of music with doo-wop vocals that I really like. <laughs> yeah. um, not, a, not a big fan of the doo-wop there, are you? No, no, not traditionally, but it's just, I don't know. Something about that tune, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was fun playing some sports with you here on episode 29. Love the pick, buddy. Thanks for bringing it to the table. It was fun to talk about. Wow. Episode 30 coming up. 30. Oof. You better bring a heater for 30 T. Yeah. Pressure's on it. Eh? <laughs> pressure's on. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in as always. And, you know, find us online. We're on YouTube and Apple podcasts. Make sure and leave us some feedback and hit us up on Twitter and, uh, chat with us and request an album. Cause we love taking requests. We've already been able to satisfy a few requests here on the, uh, on the podcast. So let us know what album you want us to dig into. And we'd be happy to do it. T where can the legions find us on Twitter?
0: Well, we are here to satisfy you. So, um, and we can, uh, help do so on the Twitter at, uh, the number two underscore twins underscore album. Um, we're
1: here for your pleasure. There's no question about it. All right. Well, t- take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you next week. For the next edition of Two Twins and an Album. Two
0: Twins and an Album.
1: Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.